Back again to the Bad Quaker Podcast, where liberty is our mission. Today is Tuesday, April 9th, 2013. This is podcast number 298. And before I uh, let you know who our special guest is today, I want to give a couple quick announcements. I've been talking about Pork Fest 10, June 17th through 23rd, Rogers Campground, Lancaster, New Hampshire. Be sure and get there if at all possible. I'll be speaking Monday and Friday, Monday at 11, Friday at 12 on um, Central Planning versus Spontaneous Order, and the other one will be Discovering and Defeating Status Thinking. So uh, if you can, be sure and get up there. And there's a bunch of other speakers that, uh, for instance, um, uh, Yuri Maltsev will be there, and you can't miss that. So the other thing, uh, Seacoast Annual Freedom Expo will be April 27th in Exeter, New Hampshire, at the Exeter Town Hall. Be sure and get to that. If you can, it's free, so... uh, If you can spend the day having fun there, be sure and do it. Represent us among all those nasty little Republicans. And um, the first annual Midwest Peace and Freedom Fest will be hosted by the Michigan Peace and Liberty Coalition. And that's going to be August 17th, 18th, and 19th. A nice long weekend. My wife and I are going to make every effort to be there. And you should too. Okay, now, so... uh, Back on the show for the four unprecedented fourth time, really? yeah, is Jeffrey Tucker. Jeffrey Tucker from Laissez-Faire Books and Laissez-Faire Club. Jeffrey, welcome back to BadQuaker.com. Oh, it's really great. I'm trying to remember the other four times. I, yeah, I think I, I remember one time or two times. Maybe I had a little too much bourbon the other time. <laughs> I was recording you when you didn't know it, maybe, huh? <laughs> I, w- I would never do that, <laughs> as far as you know. Well, yeah, I just, I just don't remember. I have to go through your archives and be astonished at the outrageous things I said, I suppose. <laughs> I contacted you today, um, as you know, but I'm telling the listeners, uh, because of the um, the big news about Bitcoins and the activity of Bitcoins and all of what's, you know, the different things that are driving Bitcoins right now. And that's the buzzword. You know, everybody, all the kids are talking Bitcoin, Bitcoin. And uh, and I think there's less confusion uh, now than there was just a few months ago, specifically among those of us who consider ourselves Austrians. Um, you know, there uh, there was a lot of talk a few months ago that well, bitcoins are not they're not real money. They're not backed by anything. They don't you know they don't have uh, there's no effort made. They can be inflated. And a lot of these things are being shown to be myths. They actually do take effort. There is scarcity. Um, perhaps one thing they don't have yet, they have value, but they don't have saleability. But that's that's coming, you know, as more and more places accept Bitcoins, that's going to happen maybe in a pretty fast wave 
What's your opinion on all this, Jeffrey? Well, every time you said the word Bitcoin, just replace it with the word email and imagine it's 1997. That's a really good comparison. You know, well, email is not real. You know, I mean, it's just these digits flying back and forth. They're not as good as old-fashioned letters. They don't mean anything. They rob us of our, you know, human sense of community. Who knows where they go? Who's keeping track of it? You know, it's, what are they flying? You know, is there, is there some post office is managing this thing and don't we don't we have to have some system in place you know the thing the thing about technology and markets in general is it doesn't wait for the intellectuals to figure it out before it just marches on and that's the beautiful thing about this bitcoin i i mean you can just ignore all the noise um uh, just like you could ignore all the opposition to email, opposition to YouTube. Remember, YouTube came out. People were like, "Oh, who wants to watch a bunch of people falling off their skateboards?" You know, uh, you know. Every every time there's a new technology that comes along, you're going to get a whole class of debunkers out there, and uh, and that's happening again in this time. Yeah, uh, I think one of the one of the biggest complaints right now about bitcoins is the they have gone up in value so much in such a short period of time. That it's scary, and and for good reason. Uh, you know, we, we see a lot of things in the market that are new and flashy, and a lot of people rush into it, and they and the word bubble stops starts popping up. But um, but this is not really uh, when you think of a bubble. It's it, what's happening with bitcoins is not the traditional Austrian way of thinking of a, of a bubble. No. Uh, the the Austrian business cycle when they when we talk about bubbles, we're talking about moral hazard. We're talking yeah. about Credit instruments right. at work, uh, implicit guarantees from somebody like a government or a Federal Reserve or something. That's right. Yeah, we don't believe the bubbles just suddenly appear out of nowhere for no for no reason whatsoever. So they, I totally agree. This has all the earmarks of of a bubble. I mean, you know, when you have when you have thirteen year old uh, kids, you know, waking up in the middle of the night uh, to check their uh, Mount Gox, you know, uh, Bitcoin price app on their on their cell phones or you know, talking about Bitcoin over over the lunch table at the, in the eighth grade, um, you know that seems like extraordinary popular delusion and madness of crowd stuff, right? So it's got the social features of a bubble, but none of the actual economic features of a bubble. Um, I actually, I think another way to look at it is that that the dollar has been in a bubble for uh, you know fifty years, and this represents not a not a it represents a correction. Of the the dollar, you know, people talk about how bitcoins are going up. Well, the dollar is going down relative to Bitcoin. That's another way to look at it. So I, I think that the real bubble is is in the dollar dollar, and what we're seeing is uh, Bitcoin trying to find its its real price. It's real, and nobody knows what that is. I, I see. The thing is that. You know, people need to be kind of like back off a little bit, be a little bit humble. You know, this is like Hayek's great lesson about about markets. They know more than we know. Um, so when I get pings from people, and I just this morning had this happen to me, somebody wrote me and said, "Okay, Mr. Bitcoin, you know, Bitcoin's at two hundred sixteen dollars now. Don't tell me there's anything real about that. Um, this is this is like a joke, right?" And I I wrote him back. I said, "Well, uh, how do you know?" He said, "I just know." And I said, "Well, you know, it's amazing that I happen to know somebody like you because uh, there are." thousands and millions of Bitcoin experts in the world all examining the markets and the software and watching the coins created, you know, minute by minute. And uh, they know everything about, you know, they're watching the public keys go by and they understand, you know, all the institutions being being developed. And none of these people know the right price, but you, you on the other hand, <laughs> know exactly the right price for Bitcoin. That's extraordinary. I mean, you know more than 
all people in the whole world about the subject. If you know that this for a fact that this is a bubble, so they backed off. It goes okay. I don't. I don't actually know. Um, I'm just going off my instincts. So, um, but I pointed out to them. I said, well, you know, instincts are fine, but you have to train your instincts with actual knowledge. You have to train them with technical knowledge and understanding. You can't just, you know, fly by the seat of your pants. Or, well, you don't have to do that. But then don't go around saying you know exactly what the right price of Bitcoin is. I don't know what the right price of Bitcoin is. When it was. Uh, $72, I predicted that by month's end it would be $250. Um, and the same, in the same article, I predicted $1,000 by the end of the year. Um, now, I didn't know that for sure. And I said this in my article. I said, you know, I just based on what I know now, I think the Bitcoin is undervalued. And, you know, I printed it just because I think it's kind of fun to go out on a limb sometimes. Well, you know, so far I seem to be right. And there's another guy um, when Bitcoin reached 30, he was all over the internet screaming that the, there was a bubble and it was about to crash. And there was a, you know, a hiccup in the system, Mt. Gox or something, you know, got a you know, DOS attack or something like that. And so the, the price slipped a few bucks. And so he went on crowing about how he was this great prophet who predicted the crashing of the Bitcoin bubble. That was just a few weeks ago. Now we're sitting at 210 or 216 or whatever it is now. So my point is that nobody knows what the right price of Bitcoin is. I mean, I can easily imagine a future in which um, you could buy a house for Bitcoin. You know? uh, maybe maybe a, a condominium in, in uh, Manhattan for Bitcoin. You know, that, that could be our future. I, I was thinking that kind of what we're looking at here, uh, you, and you you touched on it, um, is the you know as the as the dollar continues to fall in value, the dollar de- devaluates or de- uh, uh, inflates. In a sense, we're kind of seeing the Bitcoin uh, deflate. We're seeing it uh, gaining value in the marketplaces. More and more people uh, accept it. More and po- more uh, people want it. And that doesn't necessarily mean that it's it's the perfect currency or that anything is you know it, it's it doesn't have to be the perfect currency. It just has to be slightly better than its competition. No, that's true. Which Comparing it to the euro or the dollar, it's vastly better yeah. than either of those. Well, and I think, again, we all need to be humble about this stuff because here's a, I, I think, Ben, you raised a very important point about deflation. Um, we need to remember that nobody alive today has any lived experience with a currency that rises in value over time. Uh, now, there are sectors in which the currency has risen in value over time, like the uh, software industry and computer industry, and we all love that, right? But but to have a currency that's actually growing in value, it's going to make fundamental changes in the way we handle our personal finances, the way we look at the economic structures, the way we invest, the way we, you know, whether we go into debt or not, and actually, Ben... You're a man who's very interested in culture and society and things like big issues like religion and philosophy. A deflationary currency is going to cause uh, new vistas to open up in our own minds that allow us to see into the future uh, uh, or plan for the future in a way that we haven't been used to doing. Um, in other words, it's going to lengthen our time horizons and give us, in the first instance, the incentive to save, which nobody even knows about that subject anymore. I mean, why would you save? It's a stupid thing to do. I mean, mostly with the fiat currency. I mean, you try your best, but we used to get some interest from saving. 
uh, even if the value of the dollar was declining. Now we don't even get that. So suddenly with Bitcoins, it makes you kind of reassess the whole of your material life. I don't know if I'm if that makes sense to you, but you know, here's the point: when you spend a Bitcoin, you're foregoing. And let's say, you know, for sure that it's it's on its way up in, in value. You're foregoing all future valuation increases from that currency in favor of this thing you just bought, which is necessarily because it's physical going to depreciate. Now, if, if you live like that for a little while, your value system is going to change. That's how powerful uh, currency can be in shaping a culture and society. Yeah, I wish uh, I wish I had my camera on so that you could see I was nodding my head that whole time you were saying that, yeah. because that's the depth of the that's the power that this has uh, a deflationary. Um, a, uh, I started to say dollar, but a deep deflationary monetary unit. Um, it changes everything. You know how do you how do you borrow money, or why would you borrow yeah. money? Uh, I mean, this, you know. this is very interesting to me because you know we all have a sense, and I, I'm a big. You know me. I'm a big defender of stuff. I think it's really cool that people want to buy a lot of stuff. They want to eat a lot of stuff. They live well. I'm all about that. I mean, I love markets. I love capitalism and everything. And there's another side that looks around and says, you know what? This world is just – there's something wrong with it. It's like it's like people are too materialistic. I mean, do people really need all this stuff everywhere when there's so many hungry people in the world, so much human suffering, so much art unfunded, so many symphonies going bankrupt? So many churches that are not thriving. Uh, do we should we really have a bourgeoisie that just spends you know a hundred thousand dollars on a country club, um, just accumulating and accumulating ever larger houses, ever more cars, ever more junk, fatter and fatter. You know you know this critique, right? Mm-hmm. And, yep. and I hear it all the time. And I, as I say, I'm a, a defender of human choice. You know, at the same time. You do have to wonder, to what extent is this sort of, let's just call it materialism. I don't think that's a good word, but let's just call this point of view, uh, you know, the critique of this way of living, you know, uh, uh, attached to the word materialism to it. To what extent is materialism subsidized by a currency that's always losing value? Uh, you know, it's an, interesting que- it's an interesting question. I mean, to what extent are we shaped as a culture by the need to get rid of our paper? and and uh, consume now and to hell with the future you know that's what a paper money does that's what a paper money inspires in us a deflationary culture could totally reverse that i mean if you could forego um upgrading your car and instead hold on to your money and watch it increase in value by 10 15 50 100 percent over the course of a year why wouldn't you do that at the end of the year you have extra money to throw to the local struggling theater group. You have a little extra money to uh, help out a friend who uh, is uninsured and needs a surgery. I mean, you know, this, this, this will broaden people's minds. It will help people learn to be sort of benefactors. Uh, what about, what about uh, giving tips to uh, badquaker.com? You know, are people going to be more likely to do that if they know their money grows in value just because they've uh, foregone the decision to consume? It's going to change a lot of things. It's going to make society much wealthier over time. During the Gilded Age, um, 1870 to 1890, uh, the currency was rising in value uh, 
two, three, four percent per year under a gold standard, and we saw output expanding six, eight, nine percent during this period. Wages were, in real terms, were always rising, falling in nominal terms, but they're rising in real terms. Life spans expanded. We saw the emergence of a vast new charitable sector. I mean, modernity as we know it was built in these two decades of deflation, by which I mean the currency was rising in value relative to goods and services. We haven't seen that ever since. At the beginning of the century, we saw the state basically take over money. It's ours now. We're going to manage it well. We're going to get rid of these crazy little you know, booms and busts, and you just have to trust us. And we'll have a great scientific system in place. And guess what happened over the course of the century? I mean, the government totally ruined money the way they ruin everything. And as a, as a result, we saw, you know, a vast depletion of capital. Now, why is that important? Okay, so c- capital is what builds civilization. I mean, capital comes about because people forego current consumption, and they stockpile, they hoard, they build up, and then they have enough to invest for the long term. And then you see the multiplication of the division of labor, the complexification of production. That's when you see what we call civilization really take off. But if you deplete that capital, you know, you see a slow unwinding of the division of labor, an unwinding of prosperity, uh, you know, you, you start to, it's, it's like the person, it's, it's the difference between building a house, that's the accumulation of capital, and somebody who's living in a, a cold climate, uh, sitting in their house, burning uh, pieces of wood from the walls to keep themselves warm. I mean, that's, that's what we've been seeing, especially over the last half century, just this, this relentless depletion of, of civilizational capital. And it's been terrible for us. I mean, people don't save anything. People are not prepared for the future. I mean, our generation is not even thinking about retirement. I mean, people just don't think about it. I mean, we should be thinking about it. Why don't we? It's because people live for the present now. And it's a disaster. And we're going to pay the price. But something like a crypto um, currency like this, that's deflationary, that allows us to store wealth in a way that earns money, could reverse this whole century-long process of capital depletion and allow us to build up again the foundations of a flourishing, prosperous uh, society. Just like the Gilded Age created all the wealth that we've had in the 20th century, we could be right now, within the, the, with thanks to technological innovations, be creating, you know, a kind of a buffer, a foundation, an infrastructure for the for the wealth of the future because we sure don't have it now. I want to highlight something you said there. Uh, you know, at the uh, around 1900 or so. Well, well, let me say it this way. Uh, this was something that came to light when my uh, youngest daughter bought a house. She bought a a Victor, beautiful Victorian house, and we went in and looked it all over, and I was just amazed at the woodwork and the splendor of the, you know, that the handcrafted uh, beauty of this wonderful Victorian house. And uh, the house had only changed hands three times in 100 years, and one of those was through a speculator that bought it and dumped it uh, like six months later. So really, my daughter was the third owner, and uh, all the history of this family was in the attic in boxes and everything. And we found out that the man who built the house was a German immigrant that came to Dayton, Ohio, and worked in just a typical factory job in Dayton, Ohio. 
and it was a one-family income, and he was able to, with this just a standard factory job, build this magnificent Victorian house. And uh, you know they had a, a day made. They their their uh, laundry people came picked up their laundry for them and then delivered it back to them clean. Uh, they had a life that that most upper middle class in America today can't man you know can't match. Mm. Uh, now and w- of course they didn't have the the fun things that we have. They didn't have the iPhones and all the the neat trinkets and everything we have. But in actual wealth, here's a man who was able to build this magnificent house and live in it comfortably on a single income without debt and actually save. But then, uh, of course, as we know, the Federal Reserve comes in, the government takes over the money supply. Uh, we, we go into a sort of a f- semi-fascist type of government-controlled uh, money, and the dollar devalues, and that doesn't only affect the dollar. You look in that same town now and in Dayton, Ohio, and uh, a person in in middle income where you have two incomes in the household now, and they have a lot of trinkets laying around their house, but they also have massive amount of debt, and they don't have a house that can even match that that Victorian masterpiece. And this is wealth that's been taken out of the whole system, not just you know not just the value of the dollar, but the but, but it's lost out of people's lives. And like you're saying, this has the potential to 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 return that type of wealth to society. The ethos back in those days, uh, back in the late 19th century, you know, it's extraordinary to read about it because you read any of the big popular books at the time, you know, um, and you get a different sense of life. Uh, there was a tremendous, what I would call optimism. They just thought it was, you know, the way they lived. Uh, the conviction that we've now discovered the formula. We know how to keep peace. We know how to make prosperity. We know how to reinvent the world based on merit and achievement and technological advance, and everybody loved it. You know, it was uh, a great time. There were problems left in the world. Uh, Slavery was gone, right? Slavery was gone. There were problems left in the world. Um, but people thought they were manageable. We could get rid of it. We could get rid of uh, tribalism and and, and um, you know uh, brutality and dueling and uh, those are the kinds of issues that the old liberals worried about. You know how do how do we get rid of bigotry? But there was no such thing as well. Let me just say that you know what they couldn't know, they what they couldn't see, what they couldn't imagine was that. Just around the corner, there would be, you know, ghastly human bloodshed. You know, uh, millions of civilians slaughtered. Uh, nations at war. Uh, just massacres on a global scale. Uh, depression. Uh, gulags and holocausts and horror. Hundreds of millions they couldn't see that. They didn't imagine it. And they wouldn't have believed it if you said that. If you were a prophet in 1900 and walked up to um, uh, uh, your family member and told him what was coming, he'd say, now that's, that's, there's something, that can't be right. If that, if that were true, if what you're saying is true, that would mean that like some terrible devil had come along and descended upon the world to make this emergent, beautiful place uh, a nightmare. And then 
if you were a prophet, you would say, yeah, that's exactly what happened. And that devil is called uh, paper money. Yeah, uh, that's a really good choice of words considering some of the uh, some of the podcasts that I've done in, in reference to referring to this thing that we're fighting as literally as a beast and, uh, and as a devil. Well, you know, and what what did the government do when it took a, when it took a moment? What did it do with that money? Did it did it make us more you know well off, prosperous, manage it scientifically so that we could have a good life? No, it funded it funded uh, the war machine mainly. It created a, a welfare state of dependency. It it, it 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 paid its agents to go out and tell us what to do and regulate every aspect of our life. I mean, what the government did when it took over money was it took over. Uh, human freedom itself, that thing that we all love, that, that uh, through generations people had fought for, that had built up over centuries and centuries. The government got a hold of money and decided to, you know, a little bit at a time, take that away from us. Uh, you know, I got to tell you that my experience, and it's limited in using uh, Bitcoin, has revealed this to me. In a way, I didn't. I'm not even sure I fully understood it a few months ago, you know. But once you kind of mix your own, you know, life activities with these new technologies, and you see what's possible, then the horror of what happened becomes more apparent to you than ever before. That's very well said. Um, I need to take a break here and throw in a commercial, okay. and we'll be right back with Jeffrey Tucker. Jeffrey, can you stick with me a little bit longer? Absolutely. Okay, we'll be right back with more with Jeffrey Tucker. From June 17th through June 23rd of this year, the Free State Project will celebrate its 10th annual Porcupine Freedom Festival, Porkfest. My wife Cindy and I plan on attending, and Bad Quaker staff members Hannah and Matt are trying to raise enough money to attend, as they did last year. Considering fuel, campground fees, and Porkfest tickets, we estimate it will cost BadQuaker.com a little over $2,000 for Cindy and I to attend. For Matt and Hannah to attend, it should cost an additional $700. If you'd like to take part in sending the Bad Quaker crew to Porkfest 10, here's how you can do it. Go to BadQuaker.com. You can click on the Donate button on the right-hand side of the page. You can give us Bitcoins with our Bitcoin number located right below the Donate button. Or you can use our Amazon button to shop at Amazon. If you'd like to support BadQuaker.com on a regular basis, you can use the link to our forum and become a supporting member for only $4 a month or just $25 a year. Thanks, folks. And thanks for sticking with us through the break. Uh, ben Stone, Bad Quaker Podcast, back with Jeffrey Tucker from laissez-faire books and and i might want to mention uh you know laissez-faire books has maybe the easiest website in the world to remember it's lfb.org lfb.org and it's, it's almost poetic and almost rhymes mm -hmm. we're, we're <laughs> right now on a uh, on a big report on bitcoin because i'm basically i'm tired of i'm not tired of it but you know every day i have to talk people through it's great but I talk people through how to use it and where to get it, and I send people. So what I've decided to do is just put this in a big report, uh, kind of a comprehensive uh, report on Bitcoin. It's going to be coming out April 25th. That's my my deadline is about a week before. So I'm working nights and weekends to get this thing done. We're going to be distributing it to all club members. So we're, we're fired up about that. And you can find out about uh, uh, the laissez-faire uh, 
club and Lousy Fair Books over at that website, and it's really a good deal to uh, get in on the club. It's not expensive, and there's all kinds of benefits. You get free books. You get uh, uh, the uh, what's the thing where you guys get together and and uh, talk? You know the hangouts. Uh, yeah, we. Yeah, we, yeah, I love the hangouts. Hangouts are fun. You know, we've yeah, we've got a. It's a it's a big tent. You know, I mean, our, our goal is broad. I mean, it's it's like if you love human liberty, we love you. You know, and uh, we're working, all working towards that goal, and and not just a, you know, I mean, Leslie Fair Books gives me an opportunity to kind of do a lot of things that try some new things, uh, try some experiments, and um, yeah, I've thought a whole lifetime about this whole issue of like how are we going to achieve liberty, and you know, there's so many different strategies. We know there's the political approach, there's the pure educational approach, whole lot of seminars and things like that. What we're trying to do with Leslie Fair Books is uh, experiment with the idea of, of building institutions that enable people to live out a sense of liberty in their lives um, as a way of kind of, uh, you know, working towards that eventual goal, you know, creating a kind of infrastructure, an alternative in- infrastructure to prepare for the day when the uh, state becomes less and less relevant in their lives. And I think that's happening. So that's why I like this model that we're using, just because, you know, it's kind of reckless and it's fun, and we're doing a lot of cool stuff that, uh, you know, one day or the next, I never know what we're going to come up with, which is really nice. It's nice to live with uncertainty, because that always means that uh, more beautiful things can be created in the future. And that's that's what it's like working at Leslie Fair. In, in a very real sense, what you're doing is you're building... Uh, a, you know, in a, in a sense, all of us are to one degree or another, but you're building a product to compete with the existing uh, market preference, which is government. At some point in time, the, the people are going to look around and they're going to say, you know, this product, government, is, is not the best product available. Here's this other product <laughs> that's freedom and liberty. That's a better product. Yeah. And, and it's my belief, and it's my hope, but it's my belief that at some point... There will be a market shift, and there won't be a market for government. There will be a, go- a market for what we're selling, so to speak. You you have a good way of putting things. Um, I like that. Um, I think it's true in a way. I mean, you know, I remember years ago going to a homeowners, homeowners meeting, and I've told this story several times, but um, we're all gathered around. There are about you know, 50 of us, and there's many different people at different ideological perspectives. You know, there's Republicans and Democrats and God knows what else. Uh, Motley Crue. But uh, the meeting was about uh, things we can do in our community to raise our home values. And there was absolute uniformity on the part of everybody that everybody was interested in their own property and its value. And I remember walking away from that thinking, that's really intriguing. I saw an example of, of a sort of democratic setting that actually worked. Uh, there was not any need for me to stand up and give a speech uh, to these people about you know property rights and that sort of thing. They all knew it, and they acted according to their own self-interest. Each individual acted and made decisions based on his or her own self-interest in a way that benefited the whole. And I thought, wouldn't it be so great if we had society kind of work that same way? We don't have to have ideological uniformity. We don't have to kind of have conformity and uh, 100% agreement on the following you know, uh, books that we all agree to adhere to. All we have to have are institutions that, you know, help that allow us to benefit ourselves in the most advantageous way and benefit those around us. And we will choose those. The state is not 
that institution. The state is just this, you know, violent interposer, this this intruder into society that tries to convince us that it's doing great things, but it's not. It's just not. So if we can structure institutions that can help people learn and understand that freedom offers a better way, they'll choose it, regardless of ideology, regardless of race or age or demographics or sex or anything else. That's what we need to be doing. I kind of consider Bitcoin to be the most important experiment so far in constructing just such an institution. Uh, the other day I compared Bitcoins to uh, you know the restaurant chain McDonald's uh, because there were these I was in a conversation with people and they were complaining about some of their fears about Bitcoins and everything and I said, well, you know, McDonald's uh, doesn't have the best food in the world. They, uh, they don't have the best prices in the world. But the one thing that you know about McDonald's is that you, you can always find them. You're always going to get pretty much the same product, and it's always going to be a fairly stable price for it. And you know when you can go there, what you can get there. And um, because of that, the company dominates its sector. Yeah. Uh, and, and in a very real way... I think what we're seeing with bitcoins, because there's a lot of uh, a lot of not well, I don't know if they're knockoffs or just competitors like Litecoin yes, and Namecoin, sure. but uh, in, I hate to use the phrase a, a, a you know a rising tide floats all boats, but um, but all of these in a sense could all become uh, you know so many different competitors in the marketplace for money that people more and more just say, well, why do I want this yeah. this worthless paper that's just getting of less and less value each day? Well, if you can pass on you know, a multi-million dollar inheritance, inheritance to your children on your deathbed using a text message, uh, that's an advantage, you know, and that's what that's what that's what Bitcoin allows. I don't know if you thought about that, but I mean, there's a lot of things <laughs> you can do with this stuff that's kind of mind blowing. Um, I mean, transferring money from here to there uh, to anybody um, is, is is as easy as sending a text message, and uh, 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 that's an amazing thing. I mean, there will come a time and people will look back and just be amazed that people had these things called wallets, you know, like physical wallets that carried you know, big green pieces of paper and, you know, you had to carry around credit cards and slide them through readers and all this stuff. I mean, it, it all just seems, as we well, people will be laughing about this stuff. They'll be laughing at us. You know, how the drug lords, you, you know, would uh, build whole mansions just to stuff their cash in and have to spray it with chemicals to keep the bugs off and all the, you know, people will be laughing about this system in the future. When you know everybody's going to be using QR codes to, to transfer everything, I, it's a beautiful thing now. Even even my address book for my Bitcoin, it's really cool. I kind of look through it. I have a friend of mine who's <laughs> he's uh, how do I say I have to I, I won't tell tell his name of course, but let me just he's a director of choirs for a very prestigious uh, institution in London. Let me just put it that way, and um, and uh, and and I, I I got him into Bitcoin which is now he's obsessed with, you know. But um, I like to surprise him, you know, throughout the day and just send him, you know, one one-hundredth of a Bitcoin, you know. <laughs> he writes back, oh, you know, this is quite a surprise. Thank you very much for this lovely gift. You know, <laughs> it's just fun. You can just text people money. You know, who can believe it? And that's just the beginning. And we're going to see the rise of, you know, stock markets and futures markets. Um, I was dreaming the other day about the reinvention of the whole financial and monetary world based on 
currency. Uh, you know what, though, Ben? We should say something about something that's very important about Bitcoin that um, is not said enough, namely that it is an open source program. And all my studies of like practically everything, but I'm a specialist in the area of music, suggest to me that if you really want something to take hold of the culture and change society, you've got to open source it. Proprietary code, proprietary institutions, no matter how good the product is that comes out of them, you know, it, it, it just ultimately lacks the sort of legs to go the, the full distance. It's the open source model that's, that's the one that, that is brilliant and trustworthy, creative, and has that capacity to, to change the world. And so Satoshi made this an open source code, and that's, I think, a major uh, reason for its success. That's a really good point. I'm so glad that you uh, compared that to music. I did a podcast just the other day uh, on that topic, specifically about music and how, you know, I, I hate to say all, but it, because it's not really, it's not really all, but such a huge amount of modern music. You can you can put it all to the same four notes that are basically um, uh, oh this the song leaves my mind at the moment. Um, Bell's Cannon. Say it again. Cannon. Yes, yes, exactly. That was the point of my podcast. And imagine the stifling of of uh, of an entire piece of art there, of an entire sector of art. Had there been some kind of laws that restricted that and, and said no no you know the um, you know the jazz musicians can't do this the blues musicians can't do this the pop musicians can't do this so Ben that's exactly what happened at the start of the 20th century I mean there was a you know the Berne Convention only came into effect in, 19, in uh, 1886 it was the first time that copyright really became relevant you know beyond the nation state borders which you know in the old days I mean if you printed a uh, uh, well, I mean, the, on the continent, there wasn't any such thing as copyright. Even even by by uh, the time of Brahms, you know, there was no such thing as copyright. But but you know, if you printed something in England, you know, because it was copyright, you know, basically it was a, a device for censorship. But if you if you printed something in England in say the 1780s, um, and it was copyright, you could you could reprint it in Italy or Germany or Austria with no legal consequences whatsoever. So it was the Berne Convention that changed everything in 1886. It took a, a decade, a little more, to kind of take hold. And um, by the time of uh, the start of the 20th century, copyright was routinely used by everybody. This is a serious problem um, in the world of classical music because they announced to all composers, you know, heretofore, uh, you may not use anybody else's ideas in composing your music. Wow. You know, can you imagine? I mean, the whole history of music had been based on emulation. And it was a great thing. I mean, when Vivaldi came out with a cool melody, you know, every second-rate composer in Europe, you know, would redo it for harpsichord and cello, for choir, you know, for use in our following parade, and also for use in mass. And so, I mean, this is the way music worked. I mean, you listen to the opening of uh, uh, Mahler's Is that the Second Symphony? Um, I think it must be the Second Symphony. Maybe it's, no, it's the Fifth Symphony. Sorry, Mahler expert. Forgive me. <laughs> forgive me. Bum 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 bum. Okay, that second melody is from Brahms. Okay, this is a quotation. It was a very clever 
a conversion of a major uh, uh, melody into a minor mode. You know, that's what they all did. That's the way they lived. 20th century comes and it's like, sorry, uh, serious composers cannot use anybody else's work ever again. Well, what the heck kind of thing is that? Well, I'll tell you what it gave us. It gave us some pretty weird stuff, pretty crappy stuff. And um, that's why classical music had such a rough time of it in the 20th century. Fortunately, now that ethos is giving way towards a, I'm so excited about this, the artistic community is getting interested again in this idea of the commons and the idea of free culture. Free culture. Free culture is the whole key to making anything beautiful and making it work. You, you make something proprietary, you're going to kill it. I just finished a study. I'm sorry, I'm going on about this, Ben. But it's, it's a, oh, that's okay. Yeah, it's an important topic. But I, let me just tell you very quickly. I've been asked to present a paper at the Vatican in uh, July on um, on uh, the internet and uh, music. So it's an opportunity for me to speak toward you know, for some, in, in front of some, some very high church officials and a lot of really important intellectuals, mostly actually church officials more than anything else, about something that matters to me. And what I did was a very lengthy study, and I just finished it uh, yesterday, on what happened uh, to Gregorian chant uh, when copyright came along. Um, I mean, for 1900 years, Gregorian chant was an open source, just like WordPress or Bitcoin. And so anybody could print it, sing it, perform it, uh, convert it, create derivative works, the, hence you know, the development of polyphony. I mean, hence the development of all modern music, right? It was because Gregorian chant was open source. Then, in you know, 1908, suddenly, the, the Gregorian chant, the best editions ever made, came out. It became declared to be the official versions of the Catholic Church. And despite the Pope's wishes, um, both institutions that printed these books uh, copyrighted their books and got into a century-long war with each other about whose edition was better, and they would absolutely kill anybody who dared uh, print even a note of it, even a dot or a dash of it. And you know what happened? That damn thing. It was a very time when we are supposed to have seen a renaissance in the world of Gregorian chant. It killed it. That, the copyright killed Gregorian chant. So people wonder why uh, music is kind of crappy when you go into the Catholic Church today. Um, well, it all began in the 1960s, because guess what? A whole generation got sick and tired of it. Who are these mucky-muck monopolists and their, their fussy uh, music? Uh, who are they to tell us uh, that we have to pay for the right to sing this stuff? Down with it. We want something that's part of the free culture. So you know what music they embraced in the 60s? They embraced folk music. No author. Uh, organic to society, telling stories of real people, free. You could copy it down and spread it among everybody. Of course. Of course it makes sense. That's the music you use if you're a church. You use something that's part of the free culture, not this proprietary, stuffy, uh, monopolist uh, music where they're just extracting money from you all the time. So, you know, the whole of the Catholic world, the Catholic people embraced the free culture music over the proprietary stuff. That's that's why music kind of fell apart because because of copyright. It just destroyed everything. Uh, that's a that's the thesis of my paper. But I mean, there's an ending to the story. The ending of the story is that starting in the 21st century, namely um, in 2007, uh, all Gregorian chant was uploaded online for free and made part of the commons. <laughs> At the very same time, all the 
the sort of successor music to the folk music of the 60s is tied, tied tightly down in industrial machinery that uses copyright to extract rents from, from everybody all the time. So I'm looking at the situation now. One is free, one is closed. You know, what is the future of uh, music in the sector going to look like? And I think that the chant is going to make a, a major return. It all traces back to the question of whether or not you know, the music is going to achieve its natural aim, which is to be universally shareable, to be part of the commons, to be a, uh, to be a, a socialistic, socialistically owned thing, or are we going to impose the nation state on it and put fences around this thing? You do that, you destroy it. I, I just saw a wonderful image in what you in the story you just told. There was um, there was a, a, a development of the, of almost a, an Eden-like atmosphere of perfection in, uh, in chant and in other forms of music, and where it just kept getting better and better, and life was better and better in that segment. And then all of a sudden, there was a, a falling away. A thing happened. Uh, sin was introduced, and uh, it destroyed what had been before. And then a time went by, and a realization of what had happened took place, and so there had to be a there had to be a sacrifice. There had you have to kill this thing, this monster that has that has brought this. So there's a sacrifice, and and there's bloodletting. You know this this hurts, and then there's redemption, and then uh, then there's whatever the future holds for us. Yeah, I think so. And and people underestimate people really underestimate the sheer destructive power of the state. Uh, you know, it, it works in sort of sneaky ways that you can't always anticipate. It seemed like probably an innocent decision in 1908. Oh, here's our new book. It's like a last-minute thing. Here's a new book. Yeah, it took 10 years to work on it, but now we're going to press. And then somebody taps somebody else on the shoulder and says, hey, you know, do you think it's right that if we print this book that somebody should be allowed to, you know, steal it? Uh, that's not sort of good, is it? And they go, yeah, that's kind of crappy. Uh but what can we do about that? Well, let's just put the stamp on it, you know? Let's ask, let's, let's ask the state to help us to prevent that from happening. Yeah, seems reasonable. What else is the state for, you know? Heck, yeah. So they make that seemingly innocent, you know, decision without a lot of deliberation, without a lot of thought. And, you know, what follows is a hundred years of hell just from that one little, little choice made by a handful of people to introduce the state into, you know, a world that should be uh, free. And uh, we've, we've done a lot of that, haven't we, Ben, over the last century, introduced the state into a lot of areas of life? <laughs> yeah, and then expect this, when we see what's wrong, then then we somehow expect the state to fix it for us. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, things are going wrong, isn't there anything you can do about this? Yeah. And then it's hard for people to diagnose the problem. You notice this? I mean, it's funny. People have a funny sense of cause and effect, you know. Uh, you know, I, like in the in the in the world of, uh, of liturgical music, people go, "Well, you know, what the problem is it's these crazy hippies, and they just, you know, with the, it's the guitars, you know, and it's their pot, you know, and and they blame anything and everything other than the real culprit." You know, yeah. which is the state. And I suppose it's that way with everything. When inflation takes off, they blame the business and the speculators. You know, when when war breaks out, they blame you know evil dictators abroad, whatever. Uh, people want to blame anything but the actual uh, actual source of the problem. 
I think this is uh, taking it back towards bitcoins again. I think this is a real flaw in the uh, the frenzy to end the Fed. Uh, you know, I, I'm I'm all for ending the Fed, but to ask government to do it, I think, is a real flaw. If you really want to end the Fed, Bitcoin can do it, or you know, Litecoin or Namecoin or anything else, any alternative. Um, that's where the ability of the market uh, can just come in and do something like crushing the Fed or crushing the the euro um, through competition and through the marketplace, rather than asking government to do it for us. Well, I think you've identified a real a flaw. You know, that's always kind of vexed me. As long as I've studied issues with the gold standard, I've always loved the gold standard. I wrote my undergrad undergraduate thesis on the gold standard. I mean, I, I've been wild to this stuff, you know, for as long as I can remember. But the great flaw in all these proposals is that they rely on the government to achieve the reform. I mean, it's it's kind of like, well, why does government want to bring back a gold standard? Why does the government want sound money? They don't want sound money. The whole government lives off on sound money. That's all. So it's it's you know it's it's a tough realization. When you suddenly, you know, when you when you when you when it when it dawns on you finally that the government doesn't want to reform itself, it doesn't want to uh, fix the money, it doesn't want to reduce taxes, it doesn't want to do any of these things. All these institutions are good for government; they're not good for us. So yeah, we've got to have a plan B. You know, this audit. A good example is this audit the Fed movement. I mean, you know, it's a funny movement in a way. Uh, what what is the audit the Fed? movement begging for they're begging for information I mean, that's just pathetic like tell us what you're doing let us see your books well every corporation in america you know is is basically forced to be open but the fed no it's still in secret you know so you got protested please let us know what you're doing well you know something like bitcoin just addresses that completely there doesn't have to be an audit the fed in fact you can audit bitcoin right now just by going to you know one of the many uh sites where you can watch the transactions taking place right in front of your eyes. You can audit Bitcoin right now from your from your smartphone. I mean, yeah, we, we can't we can't wait on government to reform itself. I mean it kind of puts us in a pathetic position. Please reform. Please give us our human rights back. Please give us our freedom that we want it so badly. In fact we're really mad that we don't have it. So just just come on guys. You know, give us our freedom. We've been saying that for a long time. It, it, we don't seem to be making any progress in there. So, yeah, I like this alternative approach. Okay, let's just stop begging for our human rights. Stop begging for for government to reform itself and give us freedom. Let's just take take it back. Take back our freedoms uh, through our own behaviors and our own actions and the way we live and the, and the institutions we build and the businesses we we found and the, the uh, uh, artistic institutions we fund and the churches we go to and the families we, 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 we build up. Let's give uh, one more shout out to the um, uh, Lousy Fair books before I before I let you go. Uh, tell me some more about what's going on over there and why people should come over to your website. Well, we're you know I, talking about building institutions. It was a year ago I think we opened up the club, and nothing like what I imagined the club would be like has happened. And everything that the club is today, you know, none of which I would have imagined a year ago. So. We're constantly paying attention to the signals, the market signals, to try to give people new things. Uh, uh, and it changes all the time. When we first we first opened up, we thought what people wanted was a massive quantity of books. So we started you know, publishing vast amounts of books and dumping them in people's e emails until we started getting protests. Look, this is too much. I can't read all this. I don't need this much. What I really need is some a service that helps me get the ideas in a quicker, faster way. So I started writing book summaries. 
and I love doing this. I, you know, I go in and I'll, I'll summarize a 500-page book in, in three pages and the most compressed form you can imagine. Of course, you're not getting the whole of it, but it's actually, you know, a real service. And so I'm, I'm providing that now all the time, these, these super crunched down book summaries. I didn't know there was a market for that. I mean, I had no clue that people needed this, but because it's a commercial enterprise, we're, we're extracting this information from our customer base and being able to, to give people what they what they really need. I've learned a lot about about the libertarian world, about the world of ideas, and about society in general, just from being in it. So anyway, yeah, the club offers book summaries. We offer books. I make a lot of movies, uh, uh, giving the background of books. Uh, you get all those movies for free when you when you join. Uh, we have special reports coming out all the time on, on privacy, and we have one coming out on Bitcoin. It's the next one I'm working on right now and just innumerable services and we try to offer it at a very very ridiculously low price and sell it to as many people as possible as a way of paying the bills but it allows me to kind of live out my dreams and and participate and what i think of as uh, the raising up of a new form of libertarianism i have to I have to say ben that you have been an inspiration to me your your podcasts are exceptionally great i mean it's like you're the you're the sort of the bitcoin of podcasts and, and, you know, <laughs> oh, <thank> you. <laughs> we used to say the gold standard, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Jeffrey, I want to congratulate you. I, I'm so thrilled for you that you get to go to the Vatican and, and speak like that. I, I'm, I don't want to say I'm envious because it would terrify me, but, but I certainly am thrilled for you. Well, I'm, that, a that's bit, a, I'm a little bit nervous. And, you know, the, the Catholic Church has a bad habit of using copyright. I mean, it's, it's really bad. So this is quite uh, a step. It's it's quite a big thing, but um, if I don't get disinvited between now and then, we're going to be we're going to be good to go. And I'm going to present the paper towards a lot of a lot of very interesting, uh, influential uh, people. And I hope to kind of you know make make a difference in this in this one one sector. I decided you know I want to say something big and say something important, and I think that. Uh, I may have it, so we'll see what happens. I'm excited and yes, uh, nervous. When I first started writing the paper, I thought, you know, I, I was doing that sort of fear thing that you do, you know. Uh, oh, what are people going to say? Am I really up to this? Do I know enough about the topic? And finally, after, you know, a few drinks, I relaxed. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have a good friend that I talk to all the time named Michael Dean, and he's a fellow podcaster. And he and I have talked about uh, the importance of, I mean, it, it's great to talk about, you know, headlines and what's going on in the news and what we call tyranny of the day and so forth. But, uh, but what, what, what Michael and I have talked about is the, we have the opportunity to, make a ch to change history and to do something that will matter in history. And then I, I hear that you're going to the Vatican, and, I, and I'm like, that's exactly what we're talking about. This is an event that has the potential 300 years from now of people saying and that's when Jeffrey Tucker went to the Vatican and said these things I mean I, I, I don't mean to just fluff it up and make it sound bigger than it is it really is that big well, you, you could yeah. really make an impact on history well, I f kind of feel that way and when I first got the invitation uh, I mean non-Catholics can't quite understand this but you know when I saw the lineup of speakers Colonel so-and-so, Bishop so-and-so, I mean senior so-and-so uh, yeah, Archbishop. Uh, you know, the, I mean, you know, Guido Marini is going to be the. You know, when you watch papal masses, the guy who's standing to the left of the Pope, uh, 
throughout all the masses. He's called the Master of Ceremonies. He's himself a Monsignor, and he's about my age. He's a brilliant man, the, the world master of ceremonies, actually. He knows everything about ritual and ceremony. I mean, he's a really nice guy. I've never met him. But anyway, he's presenting, you know, at this conference. So I saw my name on there. I'm like, somebody, you know, sent me the wrong email. I mean, that was my initial set, but I, I was forwarded an email, you know, incorrectly. So it took me, finally, it took me really finally two weeks to uh, agree to this, mainly because I didn't feel like, you know, I was up to it or, I, you know, I felt like some mistake had been made. So, and even now I have to laugh because you can go to the website and, and, and look at all the speakers, and they're all just in these regal robes. You know, they're wearing cardinal red, and you know, <laughs> all this stuff. And then, then I'm there. <laughs> just, like, which one of these things does not belong? <laughs> it's so funny. But what the heck? I'm just got to be myself, right? Yeah, we're uh, we're just surfing along on the on the wave, that's, riding the wave. That's right. Jeffrey, thanks a ton for coming on the show with me, and you always have a standing invitation to come back on. Thank you so much for saying so. It's really fun to be here today. And folks uh, listening today, um, remember to visit badquaker.com, where liberty is our mission, and also get over to laissez-faire, which is lfb.org, the easiest spot on the internet to find, lfb.org. And folks, thanks for listening today. 